Hey, I'm David Bitterman. If we've never met before, I'm a lawyer and I've been doing this for a while. I started practicing when the latest tool was an IBM Selectric typewriter, if you all know what that is. I'm Jasmine Weatherell. I'm also a lawyer, but I'm a millennial who made the mistake of starting my practice in 2012, right after the Great Recession. And together, we're proud to host the Persuasion Occasion. It's a multi-generational look at advocacy and negotiation. Do I have this right, Jason? Millennials are accustomed to having a voice and seat at the table, and they're an optimistic group who loves social media and want their job and encounters to have meaning? Well, David, I'll admit there's some truth in there. But what about baby boomers? They're known for their strong work ethic and often define themselves by their professional accomplishments. Is that true, David? Jasmine, I have no idea. I'm too old to categorize those people, including myself. But let's talk about the show. We're going to look at persuasion from all dimensions. Our guests are going to include... Super lawyers, skilled negotiators, jury consultants, behavioral scientists, mind readers, and other experts, all talking about how to be an effective advocate. And we're really excited about working together. Maybe you more than I, David. (laughs) All right, but let's dive in. Welcome to Persuasion Occasion. This is a podcast where Jasmine Weatherall and I interview experts from all fields about what is or is not persuasive and how to become more persuasive. And today, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have Rick Fuentes, who is a very close friend and a professional I've worked with for, what, Rick, 20 years probably? Oh, yeah, at least. Rick is a jury consultant, probably one of the best in the country, if not the best. We wanted to talk to Rick about what he's seeing is persuasive to juries and what's not, and how that's changed over time. But first, I got to let Jasmine introduce herself. Hey, everyone. This is Jasmine. Happy to be here and very excited to talk to Rick. And I'll just give a quick little background on Rick. Uh, He's the founding partner of R&D Strategic Solutions, LLC, specialized in jury behavior and decision making um, and the evaluation of complex evidence for more than 20 years. So we're very excited to have you here, Rick. If you don't mind, could you give us a little more background on yourself before we dive into my questions? Yeah, sure thing. Glad to be here with with all of you. Just by way of a little bit of background without boring people, I've always been interested, fascinated, probably better by human behavior, even back in, in my days in high school and when I went on to play college baseball. Uh, that was my aspiration at the time. To, to We all have these far-reaching aspirations to become a major league baseball player and I made it into college at the University of Georgia, and then I made it uh, and got a chance to play some minor league baseball, some professional baseball. Got a check, not a big one, <laughs> but, but it was but it was a check to, to look at, and somebody's paying you for what you love. So, but even throughout those years, I was um, always reading and interested in human behavior. By the time I got into pro baseball, I I was already working on a master's degree in psychology. That's my background. I'm a uh, PhD psychologist with a specialty in organizational behavior, industrial and organizational psychology. So a lot of quantitative analyses, a lot of qualitative analyses, which comes in perfect for what I do day in, day out now for the past 35 years or so in this great career as a studying juries and how juries behave and what, how to persuade them basically and how to help our clients uh, to persuade them, given the unique nuances in their cases. Major baseball's loss was psychology's gain. So that's the way we have to look at it, Rick. Well, I figured out, David, that I could I could 
pick juries a little bit better than I could pick out the slider. So <laughs> it, it, was probably, it was probably a good move on my part as well. <laughs> but thank you. Well, Jasmine is the millennial. So I know you've got some questions based on your millennial perspective on the world, Jasmine. I'll let you go. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think you have been involved in this field in what I think is probably the most interesting time <laughs> over the course of human history. I mean, this is really the, uh, you know, information revolution age. So uh, tell me a little bit about what that's been like. You know, we've suddenly got the whole of human knowledge at our fingertips. How has that changed the way that humans process information? And how has that affected the way that you understand working with jurors? You're completely on the money there. You know, for the first 15 years or so that I worked in the field, there weren't a lot of changes. You know, I started in the 80s and then the information revolution around the time of, you know, year 2000 and going forward from there when really technology started, you know, becoming so ubiquitous. I mean, at, the, at, at everybody's fingertips and the changes have been just, just like the pace of the changes has been incredible. I think if I had to narrow it down when it comes to jury behavior and persuasion. The biggest change from before the information revolution to today is that in, in the past, jurors viewed lawyers that are in the courtroom trying to persuade them, right? And expert witnesses and other experts and even the judges as authority figures, you know, figures that came in with this super knowledge, unique knowledge that was almost like mystical about it because if, unless you've even been a, on a jury, you had no clue about how it unfolded, you know, before, before jury trials were covered uh, by cable TV, you know, maybe the OJ Simpson case was like a unique one that, that was first of its kind sort of from jury selection through verdict. But the big change is Lawyers, experts viewed as these authority figures. Today, the jurors view you, the lawyers and your experts as teachers, because we're used to gaining, like you said, information quickly. It's at our control. We have a question and we simply just use a search engine and we find answers. We can go down rabbit holes of information. We can become experts. We can become experts at anything. I mean, hey, do you want to figure out how to, um, I don't know, how to how to build a go-kart? I don't know anything about it. You, David, or Jasmine, do you know anything about it? We can figure it out on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> so, But the, the change has been transformational because it has a lot of implications for how you present a case to a jury. Think about your good teachers. Think about what it was. You remember good teachers like either – Maybe it's way back. I mean, I can still remember a great teacher I had in elementary school, but certainly like in high school, college, maybe in law school, they gave us that learning high. They, they, they stimulated those endorphins in us, which is the feeling that we get when, when we're, we're, we have that aha, I just learned something, that aha experience. And so lawyers today really have to become more attuned to that role, not only in how you present the evidence, present a narrative, but just the word usage, because you don't have that authority. Today, the intellectual playing field is much more level. 
uh, between jurors and lawyers, at least it's perceived to be. And so it's important that you speak to them more plainly. You speak to them instead of speaking to them from the standpoint of what they have to find. You know, that was, there are a lot of phrasing, lots of phraseology, lots of phrasings and words that have been great grandparented in to young lawyers. They were things that worked in the past, things that worked in yesteryear, but they don't work anymore. One, one example is, you know, when you, you tell jurors at the end of a closing, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that if the evidence is X, you must find Y. Well, the, the empowered, the empowered juror of, you know, 2023, 2024 is sitting there going, I must do what? You're submitting what to me? I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm going to do my own analysis here. And so it's just the way you talk to jurors, a very powerful technique that is useful today when you're in a teaching mode is asking questions, using rhetorical questions. The Socratic method is every every law student grad knows. <laughs> that's right. The Socratic method and also the technique that's used in, you know, in certain, I know if, if uh, my son went to a Jesuit college and he would complain initially, like he said, well, I would ask the professors a question and they would ask it right back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it, it's a great technique for today's jury, today's empowered jury to ask them what they think the evidence means to put up like two, perhaps, I don't know, conflicting pieces of evidence and ask them which one is more credible as opposed to telling them or, or preaching it to them or doing it in a way that we were taught years ago when we were advocates and we really believed in something, you know, we would say it with, um, a sense of conviction beyond anything that anybody heard. And that's, that's our job as advocates. Today, it has to be a little bit more measured because in addition to being uh, in a different role today as teachers, jurors are also at an all-time, all-time high level of cynicism and suspicion and distrust about messages everywhere, everywhere, but certainly in the courtroom as well. Give us an example of how, how you would ask a question, because you're not going to get the answer, right? The juries, they can't talk back. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times, for example, you have questions that you want to raise as an advocate about the credibility of some testimony. One example I can think of is, um, and actually this, this was used before the information revolution, but I remember it. And it, today it has sort of like double underscore, double highlight. It was a case involving a, a terrible burns and the explosion of some oil well storage tanks. And I won't bore you with any more details, but that's just the setting. And there was a, um, a young, young man, I think he was maybe 18 or 19 years old, and he had been um, on the site with a friend of his doing some of these measurements. And the, contract belonged, the contract for the work belonged to the father of the, the French father. And the friend lit up a cigarette and that hot oil came out, covered all of them. And so here he was injured on his teetering between life and death. And the first responders, he made it. He was terribly burned. And that's what the lawsuit was about. In any event, he, he was lying on the ground when the first responders arrived and he testified, oh, my God, I can't. 
he said, oh, my God, I can't believe I lit a match or I lit a cigarette. Later, you know, after the lawyers were involved, that test, that statement that was made under duress, you know, to the EMTs was walked away from. So the witness, the, the, the young man said, well, I don't remember what I, I couldn't remember what I said, but that didn't happen. And so there was a big credibility question as to what's more believable, you know, in the testimony, uh, what was said at the time or later after the testimony was recanted. And so the way that the defense lawyer handled it, because it was a very sympathetic individual, as you can imagine, he was burned over 80, 85% of his body, third degree burns all over his face. And some of the worst burns I've ever seen, burn injuries I've ever seen. And so the way, the way that you would pose that instead of saying, this is not believable, it's simply not credible, ladies and gentlemen, that you would testify different from what you report to first responders. It's, it's really a reach, you know, and, and that kind of rhetoric that I'm using puts a lot of judgment into what the lawyer is saying about this poor victim. And I had this little saying, by the way, that goes along with this story. And that is that the courtroom's a non-judgment zone. You, you as a lawyer can't judge the jurors can, but, but you can't pass the judgment. That's the jurors. That's the jurors job. That's in their domain. So the way that you would handle something like that, using rhetorical questions, you say to the jurors, ladies and gentlemen, you heard this conflicting testimony. Let me ask you this. What's more believable? What's more believable? What a person says when they're teetering, they're on the brink of death, they're teetering between life and death, they're terribly burned, and things are as lucid as they can be at the time that an incident happens, or what is said and revised later after lawyers get involved. That's how you would tee it up, something like that, where, where you're putting a question forward for them to reconcile, something that doesn't go together, something that's incongruent. And you want the jurors to reconcile it. And so you, it's important how you tee it up, but that's how you would use a rhetorical device to, to, to accomplish what in the past we would say, this is lacking credibility. This has no credibility. This is ridiculous that somebody could say this and then allow this to come forward to you after the fact. You know, that's not proper anymore. That's not, that doesn't fit the protocol or the expectation of today's jurors. That seems to me like it's a really good way of getting people to stay engaged also, because you you know the answer to the question and it's leading them to the answer to the question, but you're kind of forcing them to make that analysis in their own minds. You couldn't have said it better. That's exactly the purpose of it. I think all opening statements should end with not at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to ask you to return a verdict in our favor. Come on. We've all heard that how many <laughs> millions of times. Is that exciting? Is that does that light uh, an emotion under you? Does that get you excited about listening to the evidence? I'm not going to answer it because I'm using rhetorical questions. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, Jasmine, an excellent way to format your opening is to close it by telling the jurors, I'm going to leave you with a couple of questions that I would like you to keep in mind as you listen to the evidence. And those questions are basically your themes rephrased as rhetorical questions. Oh, oh yeah. So instead of stating this case is about X, 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 and go through the themes and uh, 
you ask the questions. Um, yeah, that's a good way to end it. I think at the be- I think there's a place, David, for telling jurors what the case is about. Uh, so we're talking about openings, and please tell me to slow down or stop if, because I want to get to your questions. But at the beginning of the opening statement, a great framework, I think a tried and true framework that still has appeal and still works because everybody wants to know quickly. And today, Jasmine talking about the information revolution, man, we are at an all time high in terms of impatience. Right. The attention <laughs> okay. span problem. And attention spans. Yeah. We want it now. We want it right now. I, I was showing somebody a video of, of uh, my son running in the New York marathon yesterday. Ah. It was about 25 seconds. And at the end, it's his wife's taking the video at one of the at one of the stations, and at at the end of like this twenty five second video, he he jumps over and gives her a quick peck on the cheek. It's kind of cute, but but for the first twenty seconds of the video, it's just people running by, and most people <laughs> most people I give them my phone, they'll hand them the phone back and they'll say, "Hey, that's great," and I'll say, "No, wait for it, you know? <laughs> right. wait for the end." Right, you need a seven second video, I think, for the algorithm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. You've got to come quick, especially if you're, well, it doesn't matter which side you're on, but it's, but I think it's especially the case if you're on the defense side, because, because the plaintiffs have already set the narrative, right? But regardless of which side you're on, a great framework, I think, that helps today, and this is tried and true, is to tell the jurors right at the beginning what the case is about what the case is not about and why we're here because the jurors, the jurors really want, want to understand that. And, and why we're here isn't, isn't well, because we couldn't settle the case at mediation. You know, it's not that it's what's the moral imperative. Why should the jurors care? Because today's again, the, your opening salvo was, was so great. It's such a, a fun and favorite topic of mine because the way jurors are deciding today and what's persuasive has changed so much. You have to give them, right? You were talking to Jasmine about attention spans. They're at an all-time low, impatience at an all-time high. You've got to grab them like right away. And when are they most ripe to be grabbed in those first couple of minutes of your speaking part, the opening? So it's important to get right to it at a high level, not start with this is complicated or this is going to take me a while. Have, you know, be patient. I need to unfold this. A lot of times, too, what we do in our presentations, I'm guilty. I'm certainly guilty of it. But we, we have so much to say in an opening statement. There's so much in our head about the case that so we'll tell them. We'll get to that in a while. We'll get to that later. Don't tell them you're going to get to it. Just get to it. Right. Just Just do it right then and there. So what's the case about? What's the case not about? And why are we here? And that's that's why the jurors should care. That's the why we're here is why they should care about the case. Oh yeah, that that reminds me. We had a, a very successful plaintiff's lawyer at our UCLA class. And Jasmine, he had three points that he always made. It was the the means, what was the motive? Yeah, he because he tried to do almost like a CSI style presentation, right? Like a murder mystery, 
and, and it would be like means, motive, and I, I can't remember what the third one is. Yeah. It's a great technique because what you're doing is getting the jurors engaged and you're, you're wanting, you're inviting them to, it's almost like reading the, the, the preface, right. To the book or better yet, it's almost like, you know, the, 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 the movie trailers that we see today, those trailers, I've actually studied them. I thought like at one point I wanted a job working in one of those studios making the movie trailer because it really is how to captivate your audience quickly. They're about two minutes. They used to be a little bit longer. Now they're about like two minutes. They're made up of sound bites and, and, and visual cues with really loud audio, but there has to be connective tissue because the viewer has to decide what the story is about, has to be able to connect all the dots. And the goal of it is what? What's the goal of the trailer? Get get David and Jasmine to come to the movies and pay whatever exorbitant prices you pay today <laughs> at the movie theater or to buy the streaming for it, right? To, to sign up. You're trying to get engaged. So how do you do that in an opening where you can't start with you know, loud audio and things like that. You have to answer those key questions. What's the case about? So that's your organizing principle, your organizing theme, the meta theme, what it's not about. And usually it's not about whatever the other side wants to make it about. And then why are we here? You know, that's really important to jurors, you know, especially like in commercial cases, think about that. You know, why, why are, why should they care if you have two companies in a contract dispute, you know, and they're fighting about the size of the upside to a deal that went bad, right? Why, why, why do I care about that? And we're here because we believe it's important to honor agreements that a deal is a deal and what creates order and prevents chaos in this world is living up to contracts. So something like that that can motivate people to, okay, well, I want to listen to this because I care about contracts, which is, by the way, one of the basic tenets of persuasion that has not changed, Jasmine. That has not changed since the information revolution. I care about contracts, so I made my little example be about protecting and sanctifying and respecting contracts because... I know from doing so much social science research that people generally, and it's a ubiquitous opinion or viewpoint, sanctify written agreements and want to protect them. So tenet number one is when you're trying to convince somebody, pick the things about that topic that you're trying to convince them, pick the the pieces or the elements of it that people already believe. It's called the confirmation heuristic or confirmation bias. You've heard of it. It's easier to convince somebody of something that they already believe in or that they already hold near and dear. Yeah. That same lawyer that we're talking about, he gives a trial seminar, but the books that he recommends reading are like 
the, that book. Uh, what's the name of it? I mean, uh, they're all yeah, about heuristics. The yeah, the, I think I might have one. Thinking Fast and Slow is the yeah. one you recommend. I, I've got the very uh, technical one here, Judgment Under Uncertainty, Heuristics, and Biases. <laughs> yeah. People have started the business of heuristics and biases has been around a lot in the cognitive psychology world for a long time, but people are starting now to go back to it because they're seeing they're seeing it at work more. They're seeing these heuristics at play more, especially like in um, political campaigns. You see it a lot. You see the confirmation heuristic. They do focus groups to understand what the you know what what the voting the voting base is interested in, and they speak to those things. That's the comfort, the confirmation heuristic or bias, which just means tendency. These are the tendencies that we have to decide things in when we decide things, they're tendencies and shortcuts really is what they are. They're shortcuts that we use to make sense of information. Yeah, I like that. Well, why do you like that? Well, because safety is really important to me because I've got kids. And so when I'm buying a car, safety is number one. Well, I don't really care so much about that because I don't have kids. So the safety features are, they are important, but not as important as, uh, you know, performance because I'm not taking children around and I'm a pretty good driver. So that person, you want to speak to them about the performance issues if you're trying to sell them the car. Tell us about anchoring. How does that factor in? Anchoring in the sense of anchoring on damages, because that's become yeah, a big thing. Numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Anchoring numbers. So for many years, there was a prevailing wisdom in the field of persuasion from the defense side that in cases where you had a strong liability or even a, even a good liability defense, right? That you did not, as a defense lawyer, offer an alternative damage figure. In other words, you did not anchor damages. That's the term that's come to be known today in today's you know, parlance when we talk about it. We used to call it alternative damage figure. It's always been a difficult strategic question because we've done research on it, you know, where uh, we present the same case to mock jurors. And in one scenario, you just fight liability, don't provide an anchor, don't provide an alternative damage figure, same thing in the other scenario you do. And what we would always find when we would do those studies was that the liability defense that jurors, jurors fared better on your liability defense when you did not anchor. Why? Because by anchoring, by talking about damages, you're giving some airtime to it. And the jurors who are particularly strong have been convinced on your liability defense say, well, wait a minute, why are you hedging? If you really believe your defense, if you really believe your defense, this is sort of now getting me to think about the plaintiff's case. And so from, for, a very long time, that was something that we advise not to do, not to, in a case where you had a good liability defense, do not anchor, right? It's baked into the process. In other words, it's in the DNA of the decision-making that jurors are going to reduce damages. Then comes the information revolution, and even more notably and more recently, the era of social change, and the era of empowerment, as sociologists call it. That's what we're in now. 
And so we see these nuclear verdicts. We see these verdicts that are driven by a lot of other reasons beyond just the specifics in the case, reference reptile tactics there. And the thinking has changed. I know it has for me that in a case where the plaintiffs are going to ask for very large damages, non-economic damages, or maybe both economic and non-economic damages, but certainly they're going to ask for tens of millions of dollars, if not hundred million or more, that the anchoring is important. And it's really about how you present that and frame that part of the presentation to the jurors. Do you need to have like an alternative economist? Not necessarily to anchor. No, you don't have to have your own economist, although sometimes it makes sense in big antitrust cases, for example, or other cases where there are big kind of macroeconomic damages. But it's really about how you frame it up to the jurors about why you're presenting damages in the face of what you believe is a strong liability defense. So you kind of have to deal with the elephant in the room, confront it directly, explain to jurors why you're doing that, explain that that's what you have to do to be comprehensive in your representation of your client, and that it's really up to them, that it's it's strictly up to them as a jury to decide what's fair. Here's what the law says about economic damages. Here's what it says about non-economic damages. And what we're doing is giving you a perspective to consider, a different perspective to consider. And oftentimes when it comes to economic damages, I'm sorry, to non-economic damages, it involves kind of making the numbers real. So what does $5 million do or $10 million do? You have to be careful how you, again, this is all, this is where the art of being a trial lawyer really comes into play. How you express these things matter more than anything because you have to be careful that the plaintiffs will rebut that and say, well, can you believe that the defendants have come in here and said that, that this person's life, that the, the, the husband and father that's been lost can be replaced by a summer vacation home and three uh, funds for college, you know, and things like that. So you have to be careful when you bring the numbers to life and make the numbers real, but you have to do it because in this era of nuclear verdicts, we have seen that when you, you do that, it puts the focus more on what the plaintiffs are going to receive. And that's where jurors start, you know, they do start exacting some like measures of control because they don't want it to be like a lottery situation or a, a situation that makes them as the jury somehow look like they're amateur or unlearned. You know, they, they want it to be meaningful to the case. They want to get it right. That's the number one motivator for jurors. Get it right, meaning the verdict right according to the facts, the evidence, the law. Anyway, in some, we've come, I've come 180 on that, on that issue from when I started doing this kind of work because of where we are now, Jasmine, the change in times. And the changes are era of empowerment, highest ever level of anti-corporate sentiment and cynicism, social change that we, we see the power that social movements have. I mean, can you remember 
David, this is for you. <laughs> Prior to, you know, since, since like the 60s, when we had so many like demonstrations and groupings of people trying to bring about change. And it's, it's because people feel empowered that their actions will cause change. And that's extending into the jury box, which is why we're getting these big verdicts because they, they're oh, loaded okay. with messages. And, and that's why we have to now respond on the defense side with anchoring. Do you think it enhances the risk of a liability finding? I think that if handled correctly, not necessarily. But I think that that's always going to be in the back of the jurors' minds. Why is, are the defendants talking about this if they really believe what they're saying about liability? It's just that the downside has gotten so big that there has to be a countermeasure to it. Now, in cases where there's either shared liability or you basically have looked at the case and said, you know, we're going to either accept partial responsibility or we're going to really attack the damages because our case is so weak on liability, it's almost a no-brainer. It's in that case where you've got a really good liability defense, um, but you're in you're in a uh, jurisdiction that's been known for nuclear verdicts. You have an assessment of, of the judge, the judiciary, that... Um, isn't favorable, that tends to stack the deck against you a bit. That's when and where I think you want to for sure anchor. But I think it's still a call depending on where you are, what's, what the exposure is, where you are, meaning the venue, who the judge is, are there, are there co-defendants? So a, a lot of questions still to consider before doing it. But I can tell you in some of the individual like products cases that we've worked on recently, that's become just part of the part of the narrative, the the uh, the anchor. There's definitely all these different threads you've mentioned that I want to pick up on. So high level of skepticism, information age, and you're, you're using a very positive word. You're saying the age of the empowered juror, but. I feel like there's maybe a, a dark underside to all of this, which you know we've seen in the rise of kind of belief in crazy conspiracy theories. Is you know how do we combat misinformation now? Because you're right, you can find out anything online, and whatever crazy opinion you have, you can probably find something that supports you. And I felt like the skepticism has shown itself in, you know, people are less willing maybe to listen to scientific evidence nowadays. Do you think that's that's true? Do you feel like there's been this rise in conspiracy theories? And, and how do you combat it? I mean, empirically, I can tell you there has been a rise in conspiracies, in conspiracy theories. And if you think about where, just take a, take a kind of a sociological perspective about where we are as a people, what we've been through as a people, right? We're we're just coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, the, the COVID know, conspiracy and, theories is what right. <laughs> really strikes me. I mean, you talk about an era of mixed messages. Look, things were evolving. We now know, you know, uh, medicine, science was trying to get a handle on what was happening. But think about all the mixed messages, you know, masks, yes, no, 
close the schools, keep them open. What's good? What's bad for the kids? You know, shut things down, open them up. (laughs) The vaccines then. Yeah, the vaccines are good. No, the vaccines uh, are great. No, they're actually not so good. No, they're not too good. Well, they actually kill you. You know, so all these messages. Yeah, they contain a microchip and Bill Gates is going to turn it on randomly. (laughs) Exactly. And, uh, And so, you know, you're talking about mixed messages, a lot of confusion. And so what do people do when you're homebound? You start, you go into the internet and you're talking about rabbit holes. You can you can you can find support for just about any one of the popular conspiracies. And look, by definition, a conspiracy can't be educated against because that's the definition of a conspiracy, right? It's like if I bring in factual information to somebody to say, you have this belief, look at this factual information that it's easy for the conspiracy theorist to say, well, where'd you get that? The government, of course, they're in on it. Or You're part of the conspiracy, state. you know, and so so it, it's hard to counter the conspiracy, and we have seen. Look, before I get to the data, let's add to what what else we've been through, like an incredibly, in tumultuous political cycle, right? An election cycle with more conspiracies running rampant through Q-Anon. there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the believers are believers. The believers are real, true, hardcore believers. And, and so we've, we've been through that. And the result is increase in cynicism, frustration with messages of all kinds, all-time high distrust in all institutions, all institutions. I mean, regulatory agencies, corporations, the legal system. We don't even trust educational, the educational institutions anymore because they have agendas, right? So here we are, and we have seen in the last three, four years, conspiracies on the rise. We ask a proxy conspiracy question. Do you think the lunar landing was faked? Was the lunar landing faked? We ask it in, we've been asking it in surveys and focus groups all across the country, we have like sample sizes of two or 3,000 responses. So it's very, you know, somebody might look at the res- results and say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's that's got to be sampling error or just error be- due to sample size or something. Well, when you have 3,000, uh, a sample of 3,000, that's powerful data set that's going to confess the truth. And what we've seen is that the prevailing norms across the country, the number of people, the percentage of people that believe that the lunar landing, that it's highly probable or somewhat probable that it was faked is about 30%, one in three people. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then in some areas of the country, it's even higher. And we, we, we see these results in all of our focus groups, mock trials too. We ask it as part of the initial sort of background set of questions that we ask the jurors. And sometimes our clients, they're in such disbelief. They're like, oh, that can't be right. You have to pull them, pull them again or ask the question differently. Okay, let's ask it differently. How would you like us to ask? What do you think? And what do you think would be more clear? So we ask it, same thing. And and again, it's, and then some people say, well, you know, this, this might be age 
age determined because, you know, the, the millennials and younger generations, disease, they, they weren't alive. They didn't see the lunar landing, you know, like I did sitting in front of a TV and one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, all that. Well, we've looked at whether or not it correlates with age. And there are just as many boomers that are 60 plus that believe in the conspiracies as, you know, Z's. So it's not determined by that. It's not age determined. We also looked at political orientation. Well, is it just uh, the extreme right Trumpers or the extreme uh, left woke? No, it's on both ends of the political spectrum. Both ends of the political spectrum. What do you do for those jurors, Rick? There are sort of like levels at which conspiracies exist, right? There's the I don't want to be fooled. And so I'm going to give some credence to this. So they're the ones that say, hey, it's somewhat probable that the lunar landing was, was fake. And then there's the hardcore conspiracy jurors, pro-conspiracy jurors. They're the ones that say, uh, you know, that's strongly likely that it was highly likely that it was faked. And they're the ones that subscribe to all the other uh, conspiracy theories as well. So what you do first, David, is you identify those. And you could do that a couple of ways in voir dire. You could do it by asking questions about, you know, whether they think they're one question that's like politically neutral is if you just ask people, hey, do you think there are more conspiracies out there than are reported? Or what's your opinion about conspiracies? Overreported, underreported, or about right? And the ones that say underreported right, are, are the ones that you want to worry about. The other way that you can identify them is through like something that's become such an incredible tool for people like me, jury consultants, when we go to pick and juries, and that is social media and background searches. Because we're in the information revolution, we can now do, Jasmine, electronic drive-bys. Let me explain what I mean by that, drive by Back in the day, and I don't mean drive-by like shootings. I mean drive-by like check out the house. So back in the day, you know, when I first started, late 80s, early 90s, we would get the jury list in advance. Well, what are you going to do with the jury list in advance? Well, you maybe hire a private detective and they might have a, some information. Databases were very basic and primitive back then. So what we would do is the clients would say, take the, the jury list and you, Rick, and your team go do drive-bys, literally get in your vehicle and drive by their homes so you can create like a bit of a, you know, socio sociological profile of the juror. What's their neighborhood like? What's the car like? You know, what uh, what's their house in the neighborhood like? You know, that kind of thing. Now we can just do it electronically because people have, uh, you know, social media and many people still, it's unbelievable, have very public, you know, footprints. And so we can get very good information. And that's where you really can find your heavy anti-corporate jurors and your conspiracy theorists, because in a courtroom, if you're extreme, you're going to say whatever in whatever kind of courtroom, whether it's a, you know, a folksy state courtroom or a real formal uh, federal courtroom, but it's the people that maybe aren't as open about their views 
but still have strong views that you can track through social media searches. I would not pick a jury anymore without that. I mean, we could do it real time. We do it in real time. But when you have the list in advance, you can really do the deep dive. That's the best way to find them out. And then try to get rid of them if you can. If you can. And then, you know, again, in the courtroom, people are all, jurors are all trying to put their best face forward for the most part. Some of them have agendas. And this goes back to Jasmine's great question that had multiple parts. I'm sorry if I'm not hitting on something that's of interest, just stop me. But there is the, the juror of concern. David, back in the day, we were worried about stealth jurors. You remember that? Yeah. They, they don't really call them that anymore because it's more common now that there are jurors who want to get on. They want to get on juries. Stealth jurors, you know, this is a juror that is, is presenting themselves presenting themselves as the picture of fairness. And I have no biases on either side and I don't really have any views about that. And well, well, I might think this, I also think that because they're trying to get on the jury because they really do have an agenda. Today, there are more people that want to be on juries, especially if they involve high profile type issues. It doesn't have to be, you know, the Trump trial or some other high profile individual. It can just be like a roundup case, right? A roundup case for uh, against Monsanto because they've heard and seen about that. Or it might be an interesting uh, mesothelioma case because they've heard a lot of advertisement and seen a lot of the advertisement, right? Or, or some other case that might have like a, a, a farther reaching social impact, whatever the jury decides, and so, you know, some of the opioid cases, for example, that have gone to trial, you know, there've been some jurors, I mean, who would, who would be able to serve on a six month trial, you say, right? Who would want to, who would say they don't have a hardship? Well, you're retired. This is going to be more interesting than staying at home and working on your honeydew list all summer. You're still active and, and you view this as a good exercise for the mind because you're going to be hearing about it in great detail about a topic that you've heard a little about that's of interest to you. And so those are the tough ones now. You know, why do you want to be on the jury? Why is it important? Sometimes the lawyers are now asking, and dear, I just helped pick a products liability case in St. Louis last week. And one of the questions that was asked by the plaintiff lawyer was, was who wants to be on the jury? And we had 50 jurors, in left after hardship and like nine of them raised their hands to so about like 20% like, I want to be on the jury. You mentioned the reptile, reptile brain. Tell us about that. Cause you always hear that, but I've never heard someone really explain it fully. First of all, let me say that the, the guys, the two guys that, that wrote the book and now have, have, have developed the, the coursework and the seminars around it. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. They've taken, brain science and applied it to jury decision-making. I, I don't really subscribe to the science that they claim is behind this. They claim that by making the, by, by doing two things, mainly by making the jury interpret their role as one of gatekeepers for their community 
and by creating fear in the form of defendant violating safety rules, rules for how you do things safely because the world is a threatening place, that you're tapping into the primitive reptilian brain, the amygdala, and that by doing so, you will propel the reptile, the juror, the reptile brain, the juror's brain, to basically protect the community, to protect each other. Sort of like a very basic uh, fight response in the fight or flight sort of paradigm. And so I give more credit to complex human beings that we are today and our abilities to think rationally. I think a lot of it is like fear mongering. I'm going to make, I'm going to talk about why you should be afraid given that what the defendant is doing because they're, they should be making their products as safely as possible. But instead what they're doing is they're cutting corners and this is how it's affecting your community, your loved ones. You're now in the role to protect. So I think that idea of let me, let me get an emotional reaction. Let me trigger a fight or flight response from jurors that that works at some level, but you know, we're rational human beings. We communicate. We don't, we don't, we don't do these things that reptiles or reptilian brains or reptilian brains did back, you know, when we were still, uh, you know, escaping predators and living in trees and things like that. It doesn't work like that anymore. It's much more complex. Jurors still want to hold corporations responsibility and they still want them to be safe because <clears throat> they're the ones in control of making the products, but it's not really the reptilian brain. You know, defendants have gone distance these days to filing, including filing like pretrial motions, preventing plaintiffs from using some of the language that's used in these reptile tactics. Like, for example, like a common one is, what is a jury? I mean, Jasmine, what is a jury? David, what is a trial? It's, it's that plaintiff's case, right? Being tried before these citizens, those claims. It's, it's not a referendum. Plaintiff lawyers want to make it a referendum because we're in this change, these, these, this social change and, and empowerment era. But the jury's supposed to be deciding the case about this plaintiff on this day. And so language about how you're the gatekeepers and your role is bigger than just this case, all of that is objectionable. And many courts have said, no plaintiffs, you can't talk about those things in jury selection and certainly in the opening. And, and the, it, it's come down to filing. I've seen some really well-written motions, filing motions, pretrial motions to keep all that, all that kind of language out. And then some judges are very attuned to it. They know, hey, you know, there's, there've been rulings this way and I'm aware of what this is. I don't really know how it works or what it is, but I'm going to keep these certain buzz phrases out when, and I'm not going to allow the plaintiffs to use them. We're not going to talk about how this is, a, you know, bigger then, you know, that's, it's kind of like the punitive damage phase of a trial, you know, send a message because others are listening, incorporating that generally into a trial. And so it's that plus, plus some fear mongering and then asking witnesses 
who are often for product manufacturers, especially they're often engineers asking them about safety and how safety should be the most important priority. And somehow these witnesses get tripped up because they think they're getting, they feel like they're getting tripped. So they trip up or they'll hedge. And so they have great sound bites. So a lot of this, these, these different angles have contributed to the success of the reptile strategy because it, there are ways, there's the reptile strategy applied to voir dire, opening statements, witness cross-examination, everything. I think it's overplayed. What a great marketing job, though. <laughs> In the last minutes we have, Rick, what advice would you give to our audience, primarily of lawyers, about how to how to improve in, in persuasion, and particularly with juries or even with courts? I would say three things. No, number one, get to your messages, your key messages quickly. We talked earlier about that format for the opening that will help you. Judges are, judges are human beings and they're in the same, same situation with, you know, overloaded with work and attention spans being impacted where we are today because of the nature of the world. So get to your key messages quickly. Remember that your listeners listen deductively, not inductively, meaning give me a bottom line position and then back it up. Don't do it inductively the way we're trained in the scientific method and in law school where you, you know, brick by brick, here's point one, two, three, four, five. And at the end, voila, you reach a conclusion. That's not how people listen or uh, form opinions and reach conclusions. So that's number one. Number two, take advantage of the cognitive heuristics, the shortcuts that human beings use to make sense of information. What are they? We all know the hindsight bias. That's one of them. A second one is that we talked about as a confirmation bias or confirmation heuristic. And the third one is the availability heuristic. We don't have time to go into it now. I wrote about it in an article that I have that I'm happy to share with you. It's on our website. Yeah, we'll post it. Yeah. And it's basically about how to make very compelling, a very compelling narrative, how to take advantage of these heuristics that have been around for a while. That's the second thing. And then I think, Tenant number three or point number three um, in persuasion is do not advance weak arguments. Sometimes we get wed to our arguments because they're ours. But after you've played them off of others, after you've gotten feedback about them, and in your heart of heart, if you know this, I, you know, this is not a strong argument, let it go. Don't advance weak arguments because it takes valuable airtime and, and brain power away from your audience and um, weakens your overall case. So that's, that's, it probably should have been number one. But anyway, those are three things I think that. Excellent. We're, we're going to transcribe those. All right. We, we got to run to talk to, talk to your other friend. But uh, this has been great, Rick. It's been fantastic. I, we, I wish this would go longer, but you, got, you can come back. You got to come back and come to our law school class too. I want to do that. I want to do that. It's always a pleasure talking about the topics that are favorite on my list and you all, I don't know how, but you hit on all of them. So thank you. The 30% uh, moon landing thing is going to keep me up, but <laughs> <laughs> this was great. Thank you so much, Rick. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. Hey, that was a great show. Thanks for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform.